I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, friend, and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network and the original Tudor History Podcast, turning 15 years old this year. Craziness, the quinceanera. So this is episode 226, and we are, I I did this very cleverly, you guys, we're bridging the gap between love month and Women's History Month. And we are talking about the love lives of three famous Tudor women who were well known for their love lives. So we are going to be looking at the love lives of Margaret Douglas, Mary Queen of Scots, and of course, Elizabeth I. Three women who were well known for their romantic mishaps and their romantic relationships. And uh, yeah, that's what we're doing today. So in other news, really quick, TudorCon, we're down to like 17 tickets left as I am recording this. So if you want to come to TudorCon, Agecroft Hall, September 20th to 22nd, three days of talks, learning, new friendships, all kinds of wonderful things. And it's at a new venue, Agecroft Hall in Richmond, Virginia. I'm super excited. And uh, there's just 17 tickets left. So if you want to come, now would be the time to get your ticket. Also, thank you so much to the patrons and members who keep this podcast going and do so much to support it. I am so very grateful to all of you. Patrons this week are getting a a bounty, a bounty of goodies. Uh, For everybody, there's an author chat with Janet Wertman, who's going to be speaking at TudorCon on Douglas Howard, who had uh, Robert Dudley's love child, speaking of love. Uh, And then patrons are also, patrons and members are also getting a members-only minicast on Tudor Love Token. So we'll be talking about miniatures and love letters and all that kind of stuff. Patrons get extra minicasts and author chats, fun things like that. And then patrons and members at a certain level will also be getting about an hour and a half long audio course on Henry VII and how he consolidated power after the Wars of the Roses. You can also buy that course if you don't want to become a member. But patrons and members at a certain level uh, do get courses like that every month. So you might as well just become a member. 
and get it every month. But if you don't want one every month and you just want to get the course, the, the Henry VII and the Consolidation of Power audio course, you can go to courses.heathertesco.com and check out all of the courses that I have available, both on tutor stuff and on how to run a creative business, which is kind of what I do. So uh, so yeah, courses.heathertesco.com. There's also, uh, I'll make sure there's a link from englandcast.com too. I know a couple of people emailed me and they're like, you don't have a link to your courses on your website. And I was like, yeah, because I'm clearly a spaz and didn't think about it. So anyway, there we are. So let's get into it. As February's embers of Love Month cool and we stand on the cusp of Women's History Month, our gaze turns to the intricate love lives of three formidable women whose hearts beat amidst the political chessboard of 16th century Britain. This episode delves into the personal sagas of Margaret Douglas, Mary Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth I, unearthing the desires, decisions, and destinies that intertwined their private affections with the public affairs of state. Margaret Douglas, the Countess of Lennox, navigated the treacherous waters of Tudor politics, where her romantic choices were ensnared in the web of succession and power. Mary, Queen of Scots, whose life was a whirlwind of alliances and betrayals, loved not wisely but perhaps too well, with her marriages playing pivotal roles in the saga of the Scottish throne, and Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen, whose heart was claimed to belong to England, entertained suitors and courtships that danced along the very fine line between personal inclination and diplomatic strategy. In exploring the love lives of these women, we peel back the layers of history to reveal the flesh and blood beneath the crowns and gilded portraits. Their stories, rich with emotion, intrigue, and resilience, offer a window into the complexities of female agency and power in an era that sought to confine them within the narrow confines of political pawns and marriage contracts. So let's get started going through this labyrinth of desire, decisions, and legacies, shedding light on the indelible mark these women left on the fabric of British history. Margaret Douglas, born in 1515, was thrust into the political currents of Tudor England from a young age, her life a testament to the era's complex dynastic and political entanglements. The granddaughter of Henry VII, niece to Henry VIII, her lineage positioned her at the heart of Tudor politics. Her early years were marked by the fluctuating fortunes of her parents, Her mother, Margaret Tudor, was the widow of James IV of Scotland, and her father, Archibald Douglas, Earl of Angus, was a key figure in Scottish politics. Margaret's journey to the English court was precipitated by her mother's tumultuous personal life. After the death of James IV, Margaret Tudor's subsequent marriage to Archibald Douglas fell into disarray, leading to a bitter separation. The political instability in Scotland, coupled with Margaret Tudor's desire to secure her daughter's safety and future, led to the decision to send Margaret Douglas to England under the care of her uncle, Henry VIII, around 1528. 
The English court, a labyrinth of intrigue and ambition, became the backdrop to Margaret Douglas's formative years. Her father, Archibald Douglas, faced his own trials, having been embroiled in the power struggles that characterized Scottish politics. His influence waned following his separation from Margaret Tudor and the shifting alliances in Scotland, leaving his daughter in England to navigate her path amidst the Tudor elite. Margaret's betrothal to Lord Thomas Howard, of course, of the very famous Howard family. He was a younger son, first of the Earl of Surrey, then became the Duke of Norfolk. So he was a younger son of Thomas Howard by his second marriage to Agnes Tilney. And we've talked about her on this podcast as well. He was a figure of significant nobility, though not immediately in line for a substantial inheritance. His connection to one of the most powerful families in England made him a suitable match for Margaret. This union, however, was forged without the sanction of Henry VIII, a transgression that the king could not overlook. In Tudor England, the marriages of individuals so close to the royal bloodline were matters of state, subject to the monarch's approval. The discovery of their secret betrothal around 1536 led to severe repercussions. Henry VIII viewed this unsanctioned union as a potential threat to the stability of his reign and the succession, and imprisoned both Margaret and Lord Thomas Howard in the Tower of London. This harsh response was emblematic of Henry's ruthless suppression of any perceived challenges to his authority. For Margaret, the imprisonment marked a period of profound uncertainty and loss. For Lord Thomas Howard, it proved fatal as he died in the Tower in 1537, a casualty of the dangerous game of Tudor politics. Margaret's mother, Margaret Tudor, had by this time passed away in Scotland in 1541, her own life a saga of political maneuvering and personal strife. The death of her mother, coupled with her father's diminished influence in Scottish affairs, left Margaret Douglas in a precarious position, tethered to the whims of her uncle, the king, in a foreign court that was both her sanctuary and her prison. Throughout this turbulent period, Margaret remained in England, her fate inextricably linked to the Tudor monarchy. The reasons for her continued stay were manifold, the political instability in Scotland, her own precarious standing as a member of the Tudor dynasty, and the absence of a clear role or welcome back in her mother's homeland. England, for all its dangers and intrigues, offered a sphere of influence and a proximity to power that Scotland, embroiled in its own succession crisis and political turmoil, could not. Margaret Douglas's imprisonment in the Tower not only marked a period of personal adversity, but also a time of profound artistic expression. Within the confines of her cell, Margaret turned to poetry as a means of solace and self-expression. Her verses were often laden with themes of love, loss, and longing, and they provide a window into her emotional landscape during this tumultuous period. These are some of the poignant lines that Margaret wrote when she was in the tower thinking about Thomas, her love. Now may I mourn as one of late, driven by force from my delight, and cannot see my lonely mate to whom forever my heart is plight. Alas, that ever prison strong should such two lovers separate, 
Yet, though our bodies suffereth wrong, our hearts should be of one estate. I will not swerve, I you assure, for gold, nor yet for worldly fear. But, like as iron, I will endure, such faithful love to you I bear. Thus fare thee well to me most dear, of all the world, both most and least, I pray you be of right good cheer, and think of me who loves you best. And I will promise you again to think of you I will not let, for nothing could release my pain but to think of you, my lover sweet. It's very sad. Very sad. These poems encapsulate the depth of Margaret's sorrow and her lamentations over her fate. Her poetry was collected in the Devonshire Manuscript, a compendium of verse by several Tudor-era poets, and it stands as a testament to her literary talent and her ability to channel her personal trials into art. Following her release from the Tower and the death of Lord Thomas Howard, Margaret's life at court resumed, albeit under the shadow of her previous transgressions. Her subsequent romantic entanglements were few, as the specter of her earlier indiscretion loomed large. However, her political significance remained undiminished, particularly in the context of succession and alliance building. Margaret's later years were characterized by her involvement in the matrimonial negotiations of her niece, Mary Queen of Scots. The complex political landscape of the time, marked by religious strife and the jostling for power among European monarchies, made the marriage of Mary a matter of great intrigue and import. Margaret, leveraging her position as both a Tudor and a Douglas, played a key role in these negotiations, advocating for alliances that would strengthen her family's standing and the Catholic cause in Britain. One of the most significant of these negotiations was the proposal to marry Mary to Thomas Howard, fourth Duke of Norfolk, a union that promised to unite two of the most powerful Catholic families in England. However, this proposed alliance, fraught with political implications, was ultimately undone by the discovery of the Northern Rebellion leading to Norfolk's execution and further complicating the already perilous Tudor succession. Throughout her life, Margaret Douglas navigated the treacherous waters of Tudor politics with a blend of resilience, acumen, and a touch of defiance. Her contributions to the literary field through her poignant poetry and her involvement in the high-stakes game of matrimonial politics underscore her multifaceted legacy. Margaret's life, marked by both passion and intrigue, was sometimes overshadowed by her more famous relatives, but it remains a fascinating study of endurance, creativity, and political savvy in one of history's most tumultuous eras. Now let's shift gears and talk about Mary, Queen of Scots, a figure etched into the annals of history as much for her tumultuous love life as for her tragic end. She was born into a world of political intrigue on December 8th, 1542 the only legitimate child of King James V of Scotland and his French wife, Marie of Guise. Her father's death, just six days after her birth, catapulted her into queenship in infancy, heralding a reign that would be beset by the machinations of power-hungry nobles and the shifting sands of European politics. Mary's mother, Marie of Guise, was a pivotal figure in her early life, steering Scotland through Regency with a distinctly French influence, owing to her own heritage. 
This Franco-Scottish alliance was further cemented by Mary's betrothal to Francis, the Dauphin of France, a union conceived to fortify the Catholic and Gallic ties against the burgeoning Protestant Reformation and the ever-present English threat. So Mary was whisked away to France at a tender age to solidify the Franco-Scottish alliance, a move that was as much about her safety from English ambitions as it was about political strategy. In the French court, she was raised alongside her future husband, Francis II, in an environment steeped in the arts, culture, and the politics of the time. Their marriage in April 1558 was not just a union of two young hearts, but a cementing of the old alliance between Scotland and France against England. Francis and Mary's letters to each other reveal a depth of affection rare in royal marriages of the time. In one, Francis writes, I am obliged to love you and I wish to do so above all things. Mary's responses equally tender reflect the warmth and genuine fondness between the couple. Yet this personal happiness was overshadowed by the broader political implications of their union. As Queen Consort of France and Queen Regnant of Scotland, Mary's position was pivotal in the Catholic powers' stance against Protestant England. However, Francis's untimely death in December 1560 abruptly ended this chapter of Mary's life, leaving her a widow at age 18. Her return to Scotland in 1561 thrust her into a realm rife with religious and political discord. Mary's Catholic faith and her claim to the English throne through her Tudor grandmother, Margaret Tudor, made her return contentious amidst Scotland's Protestant Reformation. Mary's subsequent marriage to her half-cousin Henry Stuart Lord Darnley in 1565 was a mix of political calculation and personal attraction. Darnley was also a grandchild of Margaret Tudor and seemed an ideal match to strengthen Mary's claim to the English throne. However, the marriage quickly deteriorated, plagued by Darnley's ambition and erratic behavior. The infamous murder of Mary's secretary, David Rizzio, in front of her, allegedly with Darnley's complicity, was a stark betrayal that irreparably damaged their relationship. Then Darnley was murdered in 1567 in an explosion at Kirkafield, and Mary's marriage to James Hepburn, 4th Earl of Bothwell, only a few months later, cast a long shadow of scandal over her reign. Bothwell was widely believed to be involved in Darnley's murder, and his marriage to Mary was seen by many as proof of her complicity, though she always denied it. This union, under dubious circumstances, Bothwell was acquitted of Darnley's murder in a trial that raised many eyebrows, and Mary was allegedly abducted by Bothwell before their marriage, led to an uprising against Mary, forcing her to abdicate in favor of her infant son, James VI. These tumultuous marriages, fraught with both political intrigue and personal tragedy, underscore the precariousness of Mary's position as a female monarch in a male-dominated society. Her choices in love, whether driven by political necessity or personal desire, had profound implications for her reign and her place in history. The dramatic events surrounding each marriage not only highlight the challenges that Mary faced in her quest for personal happiness, but also reflect the intricate interplay between power, loyalty, and ambition in the landscape of 16th century Scotland. Her personal letters and poetry serve as poignant windows into her soul, revealing a woman of deep emotion entangled in the complexities 
of both her private desires and public duties. Her correspondence, particularly during her tumultuous marriages and subsequent imprisonments, oscillates between hope, despair, love, and betrayal, painting a vivid picture of her inner struggle. For example, Mary wrote to Elizabeth, You are not ignorant, my dearest sister, of great part of my misfortunes, but these which induce me to write at present have happened too recently yet to have reached your ears. I must therefore acquaint you as briefly as I can that some of my subjects, whom I most confided in and had raised to the highest pitch of honor, have taken up against me and treated me with the utmost indignity. By unexpected means, the almighty disposer of all things delivered me from the cruel imprisonment I underwent. But I have since lost a battle in which most of those who persevered their loyalty, their loyal integrity fell before my eyes. I am now forced out of my kingdom and driven to such straits that next to God, I have no hope but in your goodness. And she also said, I am not of the nature to let myself die in despair as others do, nor to keep silence, let to let me be ruined unjustly. This plea for empathy from her cousin, who would eventually order her execution, underscores the isolation that Mary felt as she navigated her precarious position. Mary's poetry, often composed during her captivity, further illuminates her resilience and her vulnerability. Throughout these ordeals, Mary's personal correspondence and poetry paint a portrait of a woman caught in the vortex of political ambition and personal desires. Her letters to Bothwell, fraught with pleas and accusations, suggest a complex relationship that may have veered between love, manipulation, and coercion. Her poetry, composed during her years of captivity, echoes with themes of betrayal, loss, and the yearning for freedom, offering a glimpse into her tormented soul. A sonnet she wrote at Fotheringay Castle in 1587, shortly before her death, speaks to this. It says, What am I, alas, and what use is my life? I am at once only a body deprived of a heart, a vain shadow, an object of misfortune, who no longer has anything in life but to die. No longer, O enemies, be envious of one who no longer has the disposition for greatness, being consumed with extreme sorrow. Your anger in brief finds me abandoned, and you, friends who have been so dear to me, consider that without luck, distressed, I am not capable of doing anything good. And so wish for an end to my calamity, and that having been punished enough here, I may share in everlasting joy. Very sad. These lines written, like I said, shortly before her death, reflect the depth of her despair and her enduring hope for reconciliation, her longing for freedom and her stoic acceptance of her fate. Themes recurrent in her writings, which oscillate between defiance and a poignant acceptance of her circumstances. Mary's love life, marked by passionate entanglements and political alliances, became inextricably linked with her political destiny. Her marriages, particularly to Darnley and Bothwell, were laden with political implications, directly influencing the course of Scottish politics and her own claim to the English throne. The controversy and scandal surrounding these unions, coupled with Mary's Catholic faith in a Protestant-dominated Scotland, fueled her adversaries' campaigns against her, ultimately leading to her forced abdication and flight to England. In seeking refuge with Elizabeth I, Mary might have hoped for protection, but found herself a prisoner instead. 
her presence a constant threat to Elizabeth's reign. The Babington Plot of 1586, a Catholic conspiracy to assassinate Elizabeth and place Mary on the English throne, provided the final pretext for Mary's trial and execution, despite her protestations of innocence. Mary's execution in 1587, ordered by Elizabeth, was a tragic culmination of a life where personal desires collided with political imperatives. Her love life, far from being a mere backdrop to her political endeavors, was a central thread that wove through the fabric of her reign, influencing her decisions, shaping her alliances, and ultimately contributing to her downfall. Mary's story melding of heartache and power struggles serves as a testament to the enduring human drama that lies at the heart of history, reminding us of the complex interplay between the personal and the political, the desires of the heart and the demands of the crown. Speaking of, Elizabeth I and Robert Dudley. Let's move on. Elizabeth's relationship with the Earl of Leicester stands as one of the most scrutinized aspects of her reign embodying the complex interplay between personal affection and royal duty. Dudley was not just a courtier, but a childhood friend and confidant of Elizabeth. Their bond forged in the adversity of their early years, particularly, they say, during their imprisonment in the Tower of London under Mary's reign. Whether or not they spoke when they were in prison, either way, their shared experience of confinement and the shadow of execution they both narrowly escaped cemented a deep and enduring connection between them. Robert Dudley was a younger son of the Duke of Northumberland, was a man of charm, intelligence, and ambition. His proximity to Elizabeth, both emotionally and in courtly circles, led to rampant speculation about the nature of their relationship. The intensity of their bond is reflected in their correspondence, with Elizabeth often referring to Dudley with endearing terms, and Dudley himself being unabashed in expressing his devotion. However, Elizabeth's views on marriage were profoundly shaped by the tumultuous marital experiences of her father, Henry VIII, and her own early brush with scandal during Thomas Seymour's overt flirtations with the young princess, a situation that nearly jeopardized her position and reputation. These experiences instilled in Elizabeth a cautious approach to marriage and an understanding of its potential and political implications. The mysterious death of Dudley's wife, Amy Robsart, in 1560 further complicated matters. Amy was found dead at the bottom of a staircase, leading to rampant speculation that Dudley had orchestrated her death to free himself to marry Elizabeth. The scandal cast a long shadow over Dudley's aspirations to marry the Queen and stirred considerable opposition among Elizabeth's council and the public. Elizabeth, astutely aware of the political dangers and personal risks involved, navigated her relationship with Dudley with a careful balance, keeping him close as her sweet Robin, but never committing to marriage. Their relationship, enduring until Dudley's death in 1588, was characterized by mutual affection, reliance, and unfulfilled romantic speculation. Emblematic of Elizabeth's reign were her personal desires were often subsumed under the weight of her regal responsibilities as the Virgin Queen. Elizabeth, though, did entertain a series of marriage proposals and courtships from European suitors, each carefully considered for its potential to bolster England's strategic position on the continental stage. Among the most notable were Francois, Duke of Alençon, and Archduke Charles of Austria, 
and Eric Fourteenth of Sweden. Each courtship was a delicate dance of diplomacy, with Elizabeth skillfully using the prospect of marriage to negotiate alliances, secure peace treaties, and at times to buy time against pressing political pressures without committing to a union that might compromise her autonomy or England's sovereignty. The courtship with Francois was particularly significant, evolving into a series of marriage negotiations in the late 1570s. Despite opposition from her council and the public due to religious differences and nationalistic sentiment, Elizabeth's consideration of Francois highlighted her willingness to entertain marriage as a political tool. However, like her other courtships, it eventually dissolved, with Elizabeth famously declaring that she was already married to her kingdom. Among English noblemen, Sir Walter Raleigh stands out as one of the figures besotted with Elizabeth. Known for his charm and daring exploits, Raleigh caught the Queen's favor, receiving significant patronage and titles. Elizabeth, known for her playful interactions with her courtiers, bestowed Raleigh with the nickname Water, a jest on his name. Their relationship, though never romantic, was emblematic of the Queen's ability to inspire loyalty and devotion among her subjects. Elizabeth's love life has been the subject of fascination, romanticized and mythologized in literature and media over the centuries. Works ranging from Shakespeare's plays to modern films and novels often portray her as a figure torn between personal desires and royal duties, with her relationships with figures like Dudley and Raleigh providing rich material for romantic speculation. This portrayal, while capturing the public's imagination, often glosses over the political acumen and pragmatic decision-making that defined her approach to marriage and courtship. Elizabeth's own statements on marriage and sovereignty offer the most telling insights into her mindset. She famously declared that she had already joined herself in marriage to the Kingdom of England, and this encapsulation of her dedication to her role as a monarch underscores the complex interplay between her personal inclinations and the responsibilities of the crown, especially as a woman. In concluding our exploration of the love lives of Margaret Douglas, Mary Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth I, we've traversed the intricate corridors of power, passion, and politics that defined the Tudors and early Stuart periods. These women, each in their own right, navigated the treacherous waters of 16th century courtship, marriage, and personal desire against the backdrop of their royal duties and the broader political landscape. The narratives reveal universal themes of love, power, and duty that resonate through the ages, reminding us of the timeless interplay between the public roles we inhabit and the private desires that drive us. So we will leave it there. Thank you so much for listening, my friends. I will be back again next week, starting Women's History Month, where we will be focusing on some lesser known women of the Tudor period, which is something I love to do. Remember to check out englandcast.com slash TudorCon for TudorCon tickets. And if you'd like to join the podcast or become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash englandcast. Or if you're listening to this on YouTube, just go ahead and click join this channel and you'll get extra content, extra episodes, the author chats, the mini casts and the audio courses and all of that good stuff. Discounts at my shop, all kinds of good stuff. All right. Thank you, my friends, and I will speak with you soon. Bye-bye. Blow, northern wind, ascend, blue baby, sway.